historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. September 6th, around 1.20 a.m., six Palestinian security prisoners lift the floor in the corner of their cell adjacent to the toilet. They descend one after the other, sliding into an open space. The building, the prison that is, was built on short pillars, creating an open space between the ground and the bottom of the building. So the prisoners crawled one after the other about 80 feet in this open space until they reached the exit point. There, they dug their way out just below the Gower Tower. Within minutes, they were out in agricultural fields. The list of failure of the Israeli prison service is long. The prisoners dug for almost a year. It was digging style Shawshank Redemption, if you remember the movie, with a rusty spoon, a plate, and improvised tools. The earth dug out was dumped into a sewage system causing sewage overflow. Other prisoners complained of the sewage overflow, but the prison guards dismissed it. It happened right under the guards' noses, and the escape was discovered only two hours later. In addition, the warden didn't suspect the request by a major terrorist named Zakaria Zbaidi, a Fatah member, asking to move into a cell with members of Islamic Jihad. Now, these guys usually don't get along. They are rival organizations with very rival ideologies. Of course, he escaped with them a day after his transfer to their cell. To add to the failure, the guard in the tower above the tunnel shaft admitted that she had fallen asleep on her watch. It also turns out that the prison plan was available for viewing to anyone on the website of the architectural firm that was involved in the design of the prison. In short, failure after failure. The search for the escape prisoners was on. Fearing similar escapes, a decision was taken to disperse security prisoners from other prisons among various wards. The prisoners, filled with adrenaline in light of their comrades' escape, reacted by rioting and burning down some prison cells. The fires were quickly extinguished and the prison service took control, but this marked another small victory for Israel's enemies. Within two weeks, all six prisoners were caught. Four within a few days, exhausted and hungry. They had an ingenious plan of escape, but no plan of hideouts once they got out. All four prisoners sought help in Arab-Israeli villages and towns. They probably thought Arab-Israelis would sympathize with their cause and would harbor them. They were wrong. The Arab-Israelis called the police and helped in their capture. The remaining two were caught after two weeks in a town of Jenin, which is in the West Bank. Just a moment on this, because the security services had exact intel of where they're hiding at one point and created a diversion tactic by sending many troops to the eastern part of the city while capturing them in the western part of the city without even a gunfight. Now, let's talk about some numbers of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. So, there are about 4,500 Palestinian security prisoners, we call them terrorists, and detainees held by the Israeli prison service. This number grows as a result of terror acts or even people who are caught planning terror acts and is reduced when their sentence is done or due to prisoner exchange. Speaking of exchange, at one point and not the so far future, Israelis assume that another exchange will take place since there are currently two bodies of Israeli soldiers and two alive civilians at the hands of Hamas and Gaza. Palestinian terror organizations hold a very clear and public strategy of kidnapping either Israeli soldiers or civilians in order to negotiate the freedom of their activists. They have had some success in the past, and so let's take a deeper look into the past Israeli captives. Throughout the Arab-Israeli conflict, both sides held what's called POWs, prisoners of war. A swap 
had almost always taken place. Israeli prisoners of war were held in Egypt, Syria, and even Jordan as a result of the war. But in the last decades, Israel's struggle is with terror organizations, and that is a whole different game. The first major example is what is known as the Jabril Deal. On November 4th, 1982, eight Israeli soldiers were ambushed and taken prisoners in Lebanon. Without a viable option of an operation to rescue them, the Israeli government agreed to a deal in which the eight were released for over 5,900 prisoners held by Israel. Now you could do the math and figure out the ratio, but it's roughly 740 prisoners to one Israeli. The deal was heavily criticized in Israel, and yet most Israelis were happy to see the boys return home. But there's also sagas. The most known is that of an Israeli Air Force pilot named Ron Arad. In 1986, navigator Ron Arad and pilot Ishai Aviram were on a mission to attack the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, targets near Sidon in Lebanon. A bomb dropped by their F-4 Phantom apparently exploded prematurely, causing damage to the aircraft and forcing both crewmen to eject. Aviram, the pilot, was located by an Israeli attack helicopter a few hours later and escaped by clinging to one of its landing skids as it flew away while under heavy enemy fire. There's footage of the rescue that wouldn't shame any Hollywood movie. But the navigator, Ron Arad, was captured by the Lebanese Shia militia group called Amal. Arad was taken to Beirut, where he was held by the then head of security of Amal, Mustafa Dirani. Attempted negotiations for release failed for years. Desperate to locate Arad, Israeli commandos captured Hezbollah member Abdel Karim Obeid, in 1989, and Mustafa Rani himself in 1994. Israel claimed it was holding them in order to find out information about Arad, and obviously Israel was also hoping for a trade. During his interrogation by the Israeli Defense Forces officers, Dirani disclosed that in 1988, Arad was turned over first to Hezbollah and then to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. By 2016, 30 years after Ron Arad's capture, a joint investigation carried out by the Israeli Mossad and the Israeli Defense Forces military intelligence concluded that Arad had died in 1988 in Lebanon. Ron Arad literally symbolizes Israeli trauma of a soldier captured and then disappearing without a trace. It is unprecedented in Israel's history. If you ask Israelis who was Ron Arad, they'll know. They'll also tell you about his wife and daughter and the trauma of having left him behind. It became a saga that still torments Israeli society and leadership. The fear of a similar case haunts decision makers and often drives their motivation to show leniency in negotiations. And that leads us to what is probably the most well-known Israeli captive named Gilad Shalit. On June 25th, 2006, IDF soldier Gilad Shalit was abducted by Hamas fighters slash terrorists that attacked an Israeli tank killing two of its crew members and injuring a third. They took Shalit alive and retreated to Gaza. Shalit would stay in Hamas captivity for over five years. What is so amazing to me is that everyone knew the name Gilad Shalit, including many Americans visiting Israel. When I would ask if they ever heard of a man named, a soldier named, Bo Bergdell, the American soldier in Taliban captivity, they were dumbfounded. People had no idea. Bo Bergdell, a U.S. soldier fighting in Afghanistan, was captured after deserting his post. He was in Taliban captivity for five years and freed in exchange for five terrorists that were held in Guantanamo by the U.S. troops. Shalit was also under Hamas captivity for five years. His release was obtained only after Israel agreed to release 1,027 security prisoners and detainees. Of those released, 
303 prisoners, both male and female, were sentenced to life in prison. 148 were sentenced to several life terms, and 20 were sentenced to more than 10 consecutive life sentences each. 1,027 security prisoners slash terrorists for one Israeli soldier. Now, this did not happen without a passionate debate. Some opposed the deal and claimed that the implementation of freeing Shalit for so many people will harm Israel's deterrence capability. They added that it'll encourage further abductions. It'll also strengthen the Hamas terror organization vis-a-vis Fatah and even add manpower to the Hamas organization. Furthermore, they said that the terrorists who are released could return to carry out attacks. Some added that the release for so many terrorists, and especially those with blood on their hands, makes no sense, mainly because of Israel's security forces' efforts for many, many years, risking their lives to eliminate the terror threats and capture these people. Lastly, opponents of the deal will claim that this adds unimaginable sorrow to the bereaved families whose loved ones were killed by these free terrorists. It'll also be a fatal blow to the justice system and Israeli law. But most Israelis wanted to see Shalit return home. They argued that the state has a national and moral obligation to release a soldier sent by the state to the battlefield, and that it is a matter of maintaining the Jewish ethos of all of Israel is responsible for one another. Waiting for a better time or for a better deal for the release of Gilad Shalit could be his abandonment, just like Ronarad. And such a policy may also gnaw at the willingness of teenagers to enlist in combat units and certainly at the willingness of reservists to re-enlist on command day. Another very important Jewish value that comes into play here is the idea of the sanctity of life. If you can save one person, you save the entire universe. And Gilad Shalit was alive and could be brought home. There's also an informal virtual contract that is signed by the government of Israel with its soldiers. Israel has responsibility to the families. Israel sends you across the border to carry out dangerous missions. It has to be accountable to those fulfilling the missions. Okay, the last example I want to give you of prisoners, Israeli prisoners in captivity, is of two Mossad agents. In 1997, Israel decided to eliminate, that is to assassinate, a top Hamas official named Khalad Mish'al, who was residing in Amman, Jordan. Two Mossad operatives were given the task. They were to spray him with a lethal nerve toxin. He wasn't even supposed to feel it. Later, he would die of a heart failure or the like. Well, they screwed up. Big time. One of the operatives was supposed to innocently open up a Coke can. After, of course, he shaked it a lot. The liquid was supposedly to burst out, as happens often enough, and spray on the target. The plan failed. Something went wrong with Coke can. The Mossad operatives extended an arm to the Hamas leader's left ear, spraying him with a toxic liquid. Passerby civilians noted the happening. Mash'al's bodyguard ran down the operatives and with assistance from others, subdued the two. Within hours, Mash'al, Khalad Mash'al, was in the hospital dying. He suffered from uncontrollable vomiting and respiratory arrest. King Hussein of Jordan was pissed, big time. He signed peace with Israel only three years prior. Now Israel has breached his sovereignty and made him look bad in the eyes of the entire Arab world. The Canadian government was also pissed since the Mossad used Canadian identities for the operatives. Israel had no choice but to supply the antidote to save Khalad Mishal, as well as to agree to release several security prisoners, among them the leader of Hamas, whose name was Sheikh Ahmad Yassin. The Mossad agents were brought home. 
Sheikh Ahmad Yassin was released, and Khaled Mish'al remained alive. And that brings us to current day. So currently Hamas holds two bodies, remains, of Israeli soldiers, Hadar Goldin and Oron Shaul, both killed in 2014, the summer of 2014, in different battles, one in the southern part of the Gaza, that's Hadar Goldin, and the other, Oron Shaul, in the Battle of Sajayiya in northern Gaza. Hamas also holds two civilians, one, an Arab-Israeli named Hishan Shaban Asaid, and a Jewish-Israeli named Avra Mengisto. Both of them have mental illness. Both of them had crossed into Gaza on their own initiative. Israelis know, as I mentioned in the beginning, that at one point we will pay a heavy price to return the soldiers' remains for a proper Jewish burial and bring the two civilians to their families. Now, just for a moment, I want to mention that there was an Israeli committee that was set up and headed by the former chief justice, whose name was Meir Shamgar, that determined guidelines for negotiations. Now, the committee's findings were actually kept a secret, but, and like other committees, some of that information leaked out, and this is what we know. They claimed that all negotiations should be, first and foremost, top secret. They also said that negotiations should no longer be run by the Prime Minister's office, but rather by the Ministry of Defense. Once there's a potential deal, it'll be brought to the government, to the cabinet, for approval. The Ministry of Defense will also be in charge of contact with the families. Only a handful of security prisoners shall be released, they determined, for a soldier in captivity. And for a body of a soldier, only one security prisoner. Now, this committee had findings but it was never really brought to the government for approval. Hence, they're just findings. They're not binding to any government at this point. So let's return for a moment to the Gilad Shalit deal of 1,027 security prisoners, terrorists for Gilad. The committee had actually determined its findings as Shalit, Gilad Shalit, was still in captivity of Hamas. And yet, the deal to free Shalit was backed by a commanding Israeli cabinet majority of 26 for and only three against. And it also enjoyed wide support from the Israeli public. And you may ask yourself, why are Israelis willing to pay such a heavy price? So there are several answers to the question why, but it all lies within the idea of the values within the fabric of Israeli society. The first thing I want to tell you is something that is called Pidion Shvuim. In English, redemption of prisoners. Anyone who surveys this topic historically is struck by the fact that many thousands of Jews were captured and held for ransom throughout Jewish history and that Jewish communities went to extraordinary lengths to redeem captives. Indeed, the Talmud calls Pidyon Shvuim, redemption of prisoners, a mitzvah rabah, which means a great mitzvah, a great deed, and says that captivity is worse than starvation and death. The great rabbi Maimonides ruled that he who ignores ransoming a captive is guilty of transgressing commandments such as you shall not harden your heart, which is in Deuteronomy, or you shall not stand idly by the blood of your brother in Leviticus, and you should love your neighbor as yourself, also in Leviticus. The other reason that Israelis are willing to go so far is because at the end of the day, the release of security prisoners is not an existential threat to the state of Israel. Setting terrorists free with blood on their hands is extremely difficult, but it does not threaten Israel's existence. Another reason is the unifying ethos of Israeli society. The commitment of the collective for the sake of the individual, even just one individual, 
is the foundation of Israel's moral social power. It is these values that empower the society and ensure its existence. This is the societal glue, if you want, that motivates young people to serve in the Israeli Defense Force, sometimes at the real risk of their lives. Upon the return, Israeli prisoners of war had said that the knowledge that Israel was doing everything in its power to bring them home was what gave them the strength to go through hell and maintain optimism and desire to live. What seems like an Israeli weakness is actually seen in Israel as strength. Not only in Israel, by the way, also in the rest of the world and even in the Arab world. But perhaps most of all is that the captives are always viewed as the children of all of us. Gilad Shalit was thought to be the son of every Israeli. When it comes to defense of Israel and to our soldiers, there's a national ethos of solidarity, and it is all for one and one for all. Palestinian prisoners will continue to try breaking out of jail. Palestinians' organizations will continue trying to abduct Israeli soldiers or civilians in order to free their captives. Israelis will continue to have a policy of never leaving anyone behind. If you like the Inside Israel podcast, please share with others. You can access all of our episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You can also access them on InsideIsrael.fm. 